Welcome to Decision Space, the only podcast that takes place right here between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan. And I'm Jake. And this week, we're here to discuss Carcassonne. Jake, how are you doing? I'm great, man. Ready to jump right into this discussion. I think it'll be a good one. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited as well. Uh, much anticipated. I know people have been waiting for this episode since the year 2000. <laughs> <laughs> the year in which Carcassonne was first published. Uh, but I, I, that's not Dally. Let's get into it, Jake. I'm really curious. Can you give your rating of Carcassonne slash maybe Carcassonne Hunters and Gatherers, however you choose to so interpret, it, interpret this week's games of choice as the sort of twin games that we're probably going to be discussing in some ways as foils to each other? But mostly Carcassonne because they're pretty much the same game with some twist. Let's just say, you know, we're talking about Carcassonne here. I've probably played Carcassonne Hunters and Gatherers a, a few more times just because uh, that's the one that they have a, a great online implementation of on Yukata. Uh, but I own the original version, so I played that one most in person. And they really occupy the same space in my brain. So I think of them, you know, this rating synopsis. Uh, accounts for both uh, as does this episode <laughs> all right awesome. so, so for me i'm giving carcassonne a seven out of ten i think that it's it's very hard to find flaws in this game um but it's also not a game that i'm pulling off myself to play that often uh it's you know and and to me that's kind of the quintessential uh example a seven is exactly that a game that i like to play i always have a good time playing it uh i'll never turn down a game of it but it's also not one that i'm 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 super excited to get out um and my slogan for this game is carcassonne is the best example of passive aggressive gameplay in a Euro game. I think that's something that a lot of people think of Euro games as being, having this kind of like passive aggressive gameplay. And it's just so distilled down to that in Carcassonne uh, that for me, it's a quintessential example. Amazing. I think that that really speaks to a lot of people's experience of Carcassonne and, and certainly mine. And I hope, uh, listener, that there will be something new in this conversation for you. I know that Carcassonne is a game that a lot of people have played for many, many years. And I don't think Jake and I are going to this conversation thinking too hubristically that we will have totally groundbreaking new ideas on this really well-covered game. But I hope we'll bring some new things to the table. My rating and slogan this week... Uh, I, I really thought hard about this one. I put a lot of time going into it. So here it is, Jake. God, not that tile. <laughs> Eight out of ten. That's amazing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, that's me off guard. I was like a little bit startled. <laughs> yeah, hopefully that's not too loud for people. And I didn't peek any mics. I have a reputation for peeking microphones in my uh, my other hobby of commentating games. So hopefully I have not ruined any ears. Um, but I think with that, let's get into the game background a little bit. And then we can go into the sort of game synopsis. For those of you out there who still to this day have not played Carcassonne and are looking for a bit of direction on how to play it. But Carcassonne was designed by Klaus Jürgen Verde, God, please help me, published in the year 2000 uh, originally, and Hunters and Gatherers was a follow-up game published in 2002. It plays two to five players, and currently Carcassonne is ranked 183 in the BGG all-time, and Hunters and Gatherers in the top 
500 almost, sitting at 504. And Jake, whenever we cover games that have won the Spiel des Jahres, I think would be we would be remiss not to sort of talk about them and contextualize them at least a little bit in that. We did that with El Grande. So I've gone back. Carcassonne won the Spiel des Jahres in 2000. And one, and I have to say, I'm a little, uh, the comments here aren't as rich uh, and illuminating as the El Grande comments, but there's a few points that I think it might be useful to read. So if you'll allow me, I might read excerptedly from some quickly translated on Google uh, hmm. <laughs> uh announcement of Carcassonne winning. So Carcassonne, why does a game have to have such a strange name? Quite a few asked themselves when Munich-based Hans presented its new product, a Gluck Verlag in Autumn, uh, t- in the year 2000. The riddle was soon solved. The grandiose medieval fortifications of the southern French city of Carcassonne had fascinated the Cologne musician and religion teacher, Klaus Jürgen Verde, on his vacation trip so much that he wanted to turn the experience into a game. Uh, Carcassonne is a flawless tactical placement game. Carcassonne takes a different course depending on the tactical considerations of other players. And one of Carcassonne's particular strengths is the number of people involved does not matter. Quite the claim. So there's a bunch more. I'm not (laughs) reading all of it. Uh, But that line jumped out to me uh, very specifically because it's an interesting claim for a game that does play, I think... Uh, somewhat differently at different player counts. Oh, very much so. Um, I you know the line that jumped out at me is a lot of people have been wondering, like, <laughs> why is this game called Carcassonne? Because that's like a question, like, I feel like literally nobody wonders today. <laughs> like, you know, did, did Carcassonne, the board game, like, put the vacation spot on the map you know i I see people like on facebook like tweeting vacation pictures of playing carcassonne in carcassonne uh but yeah i don't know i thought that's funny plus like man there are so many weirder board game names these days (laughs) that (laughs) it's very interesting and I, i to your point jake i think really helps illustrate that like in so many ways modern board games are living in the shadow of Carcassonne coming out. Like Carcassonne coming out was a monumental moment for the way that games occur and happen to the way we think about games. And it's important in our conversation to have it contextualized there, because like you're saying, it's there is someone who's going to listen to this podcast and be like, what are you two talking about? I don't know what Carcassonne is. And if you're that person, that's awesome. And I'm so glad you're here. Um, but know that like, there are many, many people, I think, who... I think Carcassonne led to a whole expansion of games being named after medieval cities. And there's probably many examples before this, but it feels like it was a particularly codifying moment in sort of the culture of how you present a game. And Carcassonne is definitely a game presented through its graphic design in a really powerful way, too. Yeah, I don't have the data to back this up, but it also feels like a huge breakthrough moment for modern board games as we think of them today just like getting market penetration here Mm. in the united states um when i was growing up in lawrence kansas playing a lot of magic gathering the game shop carried exactly two board games uh settlers of Catan and carcassonne like those were your kind of two options if you were interested in playing uh you know a german style euro game as we think of them today uh so you know i think the impact not just doesn't stop just at the design but just to it goes to the exposure as well that this game has had you know so many people have had the opportunity to play this which you just can't say about other classics like el grande for example 
Definitely. I think interestingly, as like my first cultural touchstone with Carcassonne was later than yours, I think, Jake. And I, I must have been around Carcassonne earlier on. Um, but when I first got an Xbox 360 in maybe 2005 or so, there were I was playing some board games on there, and my options were I could play Uno, Magic the Gathering. No, I was it. Yeah, Magic the Gathering. Uh, Settlers of Catan or Carcassonne, which someone recommended to me. And I was like, okay, I'll try out this game. And at first I didn't get it at all. And then eventually like became very enamored with even playing it on, on there. And I think that sort of speaks to how culturally penetrated it was and it leading the way for sort of board games in that context, even digitally many years after it would have come out. Yeah, absolutely. So if you have not played Carcassonne or just want a quick refresher on the rules lightly, uh, stand by for this pre-recorded synopsis of the game. I should have called it an audio log. We should play into the like ship theme. Oh that. yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, we could say interdecisional spaceship, run the audio log, Carcassonne yeah. rules, overview. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, maybe we should integrate that. Interdecisional spaceship computer. Play the audio log. Carcassonne rules overview. Carcassonne is a tile-laying game for two to five players in which players build a board collectively but compete for points individually. Each tile in the game depicts a field, road, city, monastery, or some combination of these features. To start the game, a special start tile is placed in the center of the table. Each turn, the active player draws one of the game's 70 or so tiles randomly and then selects a valid location to play it where it connects to one or more already placed tiles. To validly place a tile, players can only place tiles in spots where each feature depicted on it aligns with that same type on adjacent tiles. For example, each field depicted must align with any adjacent fields, each road must align or connect perfectly with any adjacent roads, and cities must align with cities, and so on. To vie for points, after placing a tile, players may place one of their seven meeples on the board, claiming a feature they've placed so long as it does not directly connect to a feature another player has already claimed with a meeple. Meeples remain on the board until the claimed feature is completed, or in the case of fields, remains on the board until the end of the game. While players cannot directly claim an already claimed feature, if through clever tile placing pl they're able to connect two separately claimed sections, making them one combined feature with multiple meeples in them, the feature is scored jointly between the players so long as they have the same number of meeples in the completed feature, or in the feature in general. Otherwise, the player with the most meeples in that feature claims the totality of points that it would grant. Play continues in this way until every tile in the game is placed, at which point the game ends and the player with the most points is crowned the victor. Well, now that the 
audio log has played in full from the ship's rules computer, uh, we are going to do what we always do here on Decision Space, and that is try to sort of unpack and discuss at the head of the show the decision space of the game. So, Jake, do you want to take a sort of first attempt pulling out that old book of lenses that we have that we've been building to and all the sort of tools that we have to talk about like the size, the feel, the type of decision space that Carcassonne embodies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think Carcassonne is such an interesting game to apply this lens to both because it's, uh, you know, coming from really a different time, 20 years old, um, you know, but also because the decisions in it are so distilled, right? Mm. You, you have exactly two decisions throughout the entire game that come up over and over again with potential small little, you know, if you're playing with the Abbot or something like that. But generally the game is playing a tile, where do you want to put it? And then do you want to put one of your workers on it? And, and that's it. So it's kind of, uh, you know, I feel like we can really grab a hold of this in a way that it's more difficult with a more complex game. So... This actually came up in our discussion space or our decision space episode discussion. Um, and and I was arguing with some people on board game geek or you know, discussing, uh, I should say, uh, <laughs> no fists were <laughs> thrown. But there there was some question about whether this game is uh, a a waxing game where the decision space mm-hmm. grows and grows as you build up the board or a dynamic space. And I feel really strongly that this game fits into the dynamic category of uh, where the decisions you have on any given turn change throughout the game. Uh, at the beginning of the game, it starts out very small. You have a singular piece. Uh, so the space that you can put your first tile that you draw on are literally, you know, limited to four possible spaces. And of course, you might be able to orient your piece differently as well. So you have more than four options on what to do, um, but you know, very confined. And then as the board grows out, you of course have many more places that you can theoretically put your piece. But I find that there is a turning point in the game where even late in the game, uh, your, your options on where to put a piece are still growing larger and larger uh, if you are considering any possible space as a viable option, but your viable options really shrink as uh, you have less workers to to place on tiles, uh, as uh, your opponents have claimed more features, and then also just different... uh, especially in regarding like the farmer ta- the farmer workers uh there there may be very limited good farm options whether you're playing in the base game of Carcassonne or the other so in reality uh if you think about your the viable uh, if you think about the decision space as all viable options i think that actually does shrink uh and and it gets smaller and smaller until your last turn of the game when you literally will only have one or two viable options where it's very easy to do the calculation of how many points can this possibly score me. So I think it does do a curve from small to big, uh, but the decline at the end is, is pretty rapid. So it's not a smooth curve the whole way. Yeah, I think that's very insightful, Jake. And one thing that we've talked about on the podcast at different times and something that we've sort of resisted and, and come back to that I think you're 
explanation of Carcassonne's decision space of it being dynamic that I really agree with is we've this language of the is there a difference between decisions in games and choices in games? And I feel like we we haven't had the perfect game to sort of affix this to to the game while we're discussing it. But I think if there is one that's close enough to perfect, Carcassonne might be it. And what I mean by this is just like you're saying, there are viable options and there are options. And a choice between two viable options, I would argue, is a decision. Um, and just because you have the choice from 100 options, those are choices you could make, but you aren't necessarily making a decision if some of them are strictly better than others. So if let's say you have 10 10 to possible choices in front of you, but you're trying to decide between three different viable paths, I would argue that in that situation, you have 10 choices and three decisions. And Carcassonne is really interesting because it does a really good job of giving the players tons of choices, which gives the system a, a bunch of noise and sort of says, interpret this noise. It's going to be a lot. There's a lot of different shapes of tiles in the game. You're messing with that noise as well. But make the draw your tile and make your decision. And like you're saying, Jake, once you've played the game enough, you have a sense for what the viable decisions actually are. And I think that's what's so interesting about Carcassonne. And I think when you think about it in those terms, not uh, the choice space, which could be quite large, though there's many ways to take, make really silly moves that don't do anything. The decision space is actually fairly tight, incredibly tactical, which came up in uh, the Spill the Yards nomination, little text. And also, um, I think really streamlined in an interesting way. I also think, as you mentioned, Jake, uh, there's a very passive-aggressive feel to Carcassonne, but I think it can also be quite the aggressive game. Uh, we were playing a virtual game on Yukata, a three-player game, and you laid down a city tile just like completely in a way that basically it makes it impossible for us to ever finish the city. You weren't involved in the city. Uh, myself and one of our Discord friends was involved in it. And you basically blocked us from ever finishing it. And those moments are like so directly aggressive and so infuriating. And I think that's what's so interesting about Carcassonne is you can sort of like pretend you're like this like, oh, I don't know, I'll just place this here. But you're like dropping a bomb on the table, destroying like tens of points potentially. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, but to me, that is sort of like the quintessential like passive aggressive. I'm not bringing sure, an sure, army sure. to you. I'm not actually. I see what you at mean. At worst, I'm taking away potential points for you, and I might not even be doing that, depending on if you happen to draw the perfect tile. In, in reality, yeah. I think most of the aggressive moves are just slowing down your opponent and uh, taking away options from them. Uh, Certainly, right? It, 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 it might impact their worker efficiency because you know that a worker that they have out on the city even if they're ultimately going to complete it and especially in a two-player game just to uh, bring it back to the differences in in a two-player game right in a two-player game if there's a single tile in in the bag that's possible to complete your opponent your, your opponent's feature uh, you know and there's 50 tiles left right? They still have a fifty percent chance of getting that tile, right? You still you haven't actually dramatically reduced their uh, chance of completing as much as you thought. But if that means you know that worker is going to be sitting out on that space for twenty turns, and it costs them the opportunity of you know redeploying it to put on a different feature and get points later, then that's that is where the huge uh, advantage goes, and that to me feels very passive aggressive. Um, yeah. No, that's it, it is very interesting. And I definitely see what you mean. Um, 
I guess I, I'm curious. Go for it, Jake. So I was going to, so I'll just tell the story about the first time I played this game uh, as, as a, just a brand new baby board gamer. Uh, the first modern game I played after, you know, ex- playing Magic for a long time was Pandemic. Loved it. Like what else is out there? Ticket to Ride came up, like got that, loved it. Like what else? And like, okay, if you like these games, get Carcassonne. So I got it, played it with two buddies and we played through the game made this like beautiful little city like everything was great somebody won we were like that was interesting we don't i don't know really like we just didn't grok what we were trying to do at all Mm. Uh, so we just ran it back right then and then it started clicking the strategy uh where you know you're just trying to anything your opponent does you're just trying to mess with them right you're trying to take advantage of their work if 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 you're able to complete a city that your opponent uh, had to use three tiles to finish, but you had to do one, uh, then that's a huge win for you. So all of a sudden, instead of just like, everybody's kind of doing their own thing, having a good time, everybody's trying to cut each other off, weasel their way into everybody else's feature, you know, the game as it's designed uh, to be played. And we came away looking from that, came away from that game, looking at our board and we we're like, oh my God, like, compared to the perfect, beautiful little villages we had done before, we just have this, like, absolute hellscape of, like, holes, incompleted cities, like, it's like, oh, man, like, this is a metaphor for something. (laughs) It's almost like a metaphor for the tragedy of the commons, right? Like, this this shared play space where you're all, yeah, completely upending it because you have your own goals in coming into that shared space, which really is what's so fun about Carcassonne is, like, trying to navigate the chaos of the other players. Also, directly addressed in the Spill the Arrows. Um, I'm curious, though, Jake, one thing we, we haven't talked about games a lot using this lens lately because in general i think we've come down on this sort of idea that it doesn't really matter and it's not as interesting but i I think it might be interesting to discuss here how do you feel what do you think the size of carcassonne's decision space is and on a given game like both on the table and in the bag or the piles of tiles around the table as they exist Hmm. yeah i mean that's a really really interesting question I feel like the decision space is pretty small. And I think that speaks to the discussion we had about choices versus decisions. Uh, The more I play the game, the more I feel as though on my turn, because it's just so tactical, right? There's not very much strategy to... uh, to speak of. You know, obviously, if you start building a city... Yeah, you're gonna want to try and complete it if, if possible. But even even therein, I think a lot of times a better strategy is just doing very small features and and finishing those off rather than trying to build something really big that other people are gonna have greater opportunity to either mess you up or get in and take advantage of your hard work. Um, so I think just because of the tactical nature of the game and the fact that the actual viable decisions are much smaller than the number of choices you have you're i typically find myself grappling between you know two or three choices like viable decisions on my turn and often it's just like a no-brainer will come up too like i'll get the right like you said like yep that's the one piece i need to finish this or yep that allows me to finish this feature and get points uh so i just kind of place it there and that leaves me only with the the second part of the turn which is where do I put a worker on it if I choose to do that? 
And I think in therein, it's usually a pretty straightforward calculation. Um, that's not to say there aren't very, very thought-provoking moments, but I think they, that's not necessarily the norm. And even if it's thought-provoking, it's like one or two different choices. Yeah, definitely. I think it's very interesting. So one of the common criticisms that comes up of Carcassonne is the sort of idea that you, the decision path through a game is literally draw a tile, then place it, and then place a meeple if you want to or not. Um, and a lot of people give the criticism that you are only ever having one tile, so you can't plan into the future. Um, but I think that this is actually like part of the essential magic of Carcassonne because there are so many potential choices, just the potential for the game to slow down and be bogged down increases so much when you have options that I really feel like part of the magic is the fact that you're just being asked to make a really simple tactical decision. And that sometimes the the feeling of what you described, Jake, when the tiles line up perfectly and you draw your bingo, um, where you, you draw the card where it's the tile where it's exactly the tile you needed to finish these two or three things that you need. To me, that's why this design works so well and is so special. And it's happening organically in how the tiles come out. Um, and it can feel random, but somehow like, humans are so weird that sometimes we find a way to make what we know is absolutely random feel like special and meaningful and when it happened. Um, and that's like when that tile comes out at just the right time, it's like this cherished little moment. And Carcassonne for me does that so well. And that's the win of the decision space. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, on the other side of the coin is when you get a tile that sucks for you and you have yeah. to like really <laughs> think like, okay, I this would be so great for all of my opponents. Like I could, you know, help them a lot, but I don't want to do that. Um, so I think a lot of times finding a way to get value or potential value mm. down the road uh, from a piece that has no inherent value on the board um, is a lot of times like where some of the richest decision space can be found in the game and probably some of the more like uh, skill separating moments, right? Uh, between like per really good play and just, you know, average competent play is found there. And I think, that you're right. A lot of people do choose to play with the variant where you can, it's not an official variant that I know of, uh, an unofficial variant where you have a hand of three tiles and you, you know, play one and then you refill your hand to three at the end of the turn. But I think I agree with you. To me, uh, though I haven't tried that, it feels as though that would uh, just kind of squish down the highs and the lows of the game uh, to probably create a longer less exciting experience and i i guess i just don't care so much about uh, a game of this weight being like the deepest experience in the world it kind of doesn't have to be yeah and i i don't think is setting out to be like you're saying um so that's really interesting i think it, as we sort of i mean sort of narrow in on what we're discussing here. Maybe another important question would be then, if we think it's a, a smaller decision space, what generally the most interesting decision-making moment is? And this is kind of like a tough question in the nature of this game, because you really, as we talked about, your decision path through the game, you like draw a tile, okay, make a decision, and you decide whether or not to place a meeple. So... Now that I've posed this like very broad question for a pretty narrow path, I'm curious where where you might take the conversation with that one, Jake. Yeah, 
For me, I think the most interesting decisions in the game are decisions that ask you to project uh, further out into the future. And that can happen in either uh, phase of the game, playing the tile down uh, or uh, placing the worker. In, In the example of placing a tile, it's really interesting, I think, when um, I'm trying to find a way into somebody else's uh, points, essentially. A lot of times this takes a place of uh, with with the farmers um, where you can't, there's a very valuable field, but you can't, of course, as is core to the game, you can't place a field in, you can't place a worker straight into that field. So you have to create your a new path into it from somewhere outside of it. And a lot of times there can be uh, the opportunity to find a place to place a worker that's only one uh, path away or but potentially not sometimes you have to plan for two or three tiles down the road uh, to to try and give yourself the opportunity to get in on that uh, field and I think that's pretty exciting uh, and, and it's it's a really a moment that tests you like is it worth it to go to this go for that how much time is left in the game uh, what do I based on my understanding of uh, the tiles that I've seen on the board, what do I think the likelihood is that there are enough tiles left in the bag uh, to make, to get the tiles I need to even complete that path? Um, you know, once you're starting to ask yourself those questions, I think you're definitely getting into a deeper decision space. And I think the same is is true when you're placing a worker on a feature, uh, though a lot of times that calculation is a little more straightforward of just, like, do I think there's enough time in the game that I can complete this feature? Um, so that has to do with the kind of this, again, this like turning point in the game where uh, you're you're running out of resources, which includes both workers and time. And, inter- and opportunity for placement in some ways also, depending on like where the farmers have come out, how earlier people are contributing farmers and how the tiles have arranged that make it easier or more difficult to backdoor into those farms. So it's sort of interesting because the tiles are set. The tiles in any given game of Carcassonne are always going to play out. The same number of tiles will be taken and played. Um, But based on how those tiles come out, the order that they come out and the decisions that your opponents make of when to place their tiles, where, especially with farmers or cities uh, to some extent, can really sort of inform the timing aspect of the game in a way that I think, like you were saying, Jake, becomes the the most interesting decisions in the game. And with, so to me, it's, I've been grappling with this a lot. It is, so I talked about Keyforge, about it being a game of intuitive or instinctual probabilities, that the probabilities are always uh, of any given question you have as a player, of an important moment happening, uh, being roughly within grasp when you're just like trying to decide on that. Like you can usually make a decently good judgment call uh, on if X decision is smart based on Y happening. And I feel like for me as a player with Carcassonne, the game goes to a much, uh, the, the nature of the game makes it much more difficult to make sound judgment calls based on how certain things will happen, uh, how certain tiles will come out in certain arrangements, in part because of the nature of the tiles, but more so because of the decisions of my uh, fellow players. But I never feel like I'm 
trying to intuit what you're going to do very much because it's usually clear on the board what you want to do. So in that sense, the decision space of Carcassonne, I, I can't think of a lot of games that sort of exist in that space where it's a game of trying to factor in the probability of certain things happening, but me not really having any doubt of what you're trying to accomplish. That's fascinating. I think that is uh, definitely something that makes the decision space in Carcassonne feel very unique um, to other games uh, of, of similar size and scope. And I think you're exactly right. Like the Because your opponents have to pre-plan essentially every single point they're going to score in the game by putting a worker mm-hmm. onto the game. So kind of in that sense, you know, the entire game is just choosing endgame scoring conditions uh, that, that may get completed before the end of the game. So you, you're exactly right. You know, you can, once you have played literally your first game of Carcassonne, you'll be able to look at the board and see exactly what your opponent wants to do. And it may be, or probably will be, uh, they'll be wanting to do two or three things at the same time, keeping their option open. But it's like, okay, well, if they get uh, a city tile or you know a forest tile, if you're playing Hunters and Gatherer, they're going to put it there. If they get one of these other features, they're going to try and do this. Um, so yeah, you really don't have to at all predict your opponent, um, which which is interesting. And then, then that really just makes the game about predicting the probability of the what's left in the bag which i do think is a little bit more intuitive perhaps than you do um i definitely go for it okay it straddles this weird line where uh so if you're playing in person the tiles are all hidden and I, i believe in my copy of the game it shows you in the rule book all possible tiles so you could theoretically know okay there are zero tiles left in the bag that could come out that would fit in this particular space um i haven't tried to memorize you know what tiles are in there at all um and i just don't think you know it's it's because of maybe the weight of the game it's not something that really calls for it i'm sure you know there's probably this game is is such a popular game there's probably like a world championship and i imagine certainly the players playing at that level would know what's in there but without memorizing what's in the bag you can make good assumptions about how likely it is that you'll be able to complete a a space based almost exclusively on how many borders are already touching it right if there's no no nothing around it right you're just putting two tiles together uh that's very very likely to be done um almost up to the point where there's only you know five or six tiles left in the bag if there's two tiles you're trying to match up with it gets much less likely if there's three tiles that you're trying to match up with less likely still by a pretty precipitous amount and if you know you're trying to literally fill in a hole in the board, you know don't count on that. <laughs> and I think those are kind of baseline assumptions that players can make uh, to to get them up and running to be playing this game very competently without memorizing anything at all. No, that's that's definitely true. And I think to that sense, the way in which I was talking about the probabilities in the game is sort of wrong. And I think I'm really glad that you brought up the sort of 
two ways in which people might approach playing the game. Because I think normally when we're talking on the podcast, we just assume that people are playing the most competitive way possible. But this week, we're discussing a game that I think each of us have tackled more casually competitively than we have truly competitively. Um, and I don't, there's certainly a way in which you play Carcassonne where you just have, it is a game of complete perfect open information. Both players know every single tile in the game. They know which tiles are less likely to come up. And in any given moment, when they look at the board, they know how many meeples their opponents have left and they know what tiles are in the bag and what tiles are on the table. It's a perfect information game, purely perfect. But when I play the game, it's certainly not that way because to, to your point, Jake, I don't have the idea of exactly what tiles exist. And I'm really thankful that there's not a reference sheet that gets handed out to every player that says there's this many of this and this many of that because it just goes against sort of the spirit of what the game wants you to be doing um, and how it wants you to sort of intuitively being laying out a city and to be laying out farms and roads and this sort of thing. Um, so I guess I don't really have anything much more interesting to say than that, then thank goodness this game was not published with a reference sheet uh, because it would really, it would, it would put sort of a, a nail through the heart in the decision space. And maybe that's something that we haven't talked a lot about, but the context in which games are published, uh, the way in which a decision space is presented matters as much as the decision space itself in some ways for how that decision space is experienced. And with Carcassonne, uh, thank goodness that it wasn't presented differently. Because it would be, I think, a less interesting game in a casual setting with something like that. I Definitely, yeah. And there's just something about the game. Like, I enjoy it, when, especially when I'm playing in person, that it's almost like a meditative experience, right? You're just picking a tile, putting it on the board. Next person is picking a tile, putting it on the board. You're sitting there. It doesn't have to occupy... 100% of your brain, uh, you know, you can chat with your friends, uh, you're building this nice, pleasant looking board environment and having a great shared experience. And I think it's wonderful for that. So often, when we're talking about these games, especially the heavier, more complex one, uh, something that I think about a lot is like, even on our last episode of Grand Austria Hotel, uh, we were talking about how you almost are like picking and choosing what you're focusing on because the the human brain, or at least my human brain, doesn't have the bandwidth to be tracking all the different factors at the same time. But in Carcassonne, it kind of does, assuming I'm not trying to memorize everything. And that's pretty nice for a change of, of pace. It, it feels so different to play. Do you think the design of the game gives you that license in some ways jake like why just taking a step back why do why do you and i when we play carcassonne not feel like we have to approach it in the same way that we do when we sit down to play a game of lost ruins of arnak or grand austria hotel that's a great question i think it has to well one thought that comes to mind right away is that there is significant randomness in the yeah. game right and again that that maybe speaks to why I personally would prefer to play it as with the rules as written rather than the three card or the three tile variant. Um, so I think when, you know, all you're getting is one card or one tile. Why am I saying cards all of a sudden? <laughs> as soon as you bring up competitive, I'm like, these are cards. And now, <laughs> uh, now it's on. Um, no, but because you're only ever getting one tile at a time, every choice you're making in the game is like, well, this is the best that I have with what was available. 
uh, where I think games that give you more resources and more to work with, right, are, are telling you that there's more strategy and elements. And and I feel like when I see that, if there's more to work with, there's I want to make more out of it. And, and that just triggers my brain and play style to, to really start thinking through options much more. I don't know. No, I think that's that's so fair. And I think you've sort of centered in on what I might center in on. And one thing that I don't know why this is coming to my mind, but I'm just going to mention it. Um, when Richard Garfield was like working on the original Star Wars trading card game or there was a Star Wars trading card game that had dice in it um, and they were going to do dice rolls. And whenever they added more dice, playtesters always said, this game feels so much more random. And if they had fewer dice, literally the number of dice you rolled, playtesters would say, oh, this game doesn't feel as random. But the truth is, the more, the more dice you roll, the, the less random, the easier it is to predict the outcome of that pool of dice, right? So I wonder if part of partially why that is, is exactly like you're saying, Jake, the amount of randomness in Carcassonne as players gives us license to feel like we don't have to be overly invested in trying to game out every possibility because it's impossible. And then on top of that, why Carcassonne doesn't feel too random is that you get to make tons of decisions as you may, as the game plays out. Every turn you make two decisions and they're really quick and they're bite-sized so the game doesn't drag and get boring and too analysis paralysis for players literally sitting at a table. But at the same time, the randomness doesn't feel bad because it's not a game with a ton of random events where you make six decisions. It's a game with a bunch of random events where you end up making... Uh, 20 decisions at least and probably more than that and different types and it's paced really well and it's interesting to me those sort of two qualities how this high randomness game is met with comparatively i don't know grand austria hotel is also fairly random in in the way that workers can come out but you make 14 decisions in that game and no that's not true there are 14 rounds but here like your number of decisions in a two-player game is significantly higher because you just cut the tile pool in half so you're making like 38 turns or something and i think that goes a lot to helping the randomness feel more fair help me out yeah am i, am I off the rails no i think i think that makes sense i i'm not sure that i'm seeing the direct comparison to the dice thing right dice I'm, yeah. because right that's i think if people had if there were if we were drawing three cards here people would say it's less random so i don't know if that's like a one-to-one comparison but I like what you're kind of getting at. I uh, think my, can I jump in really yeah, quickly? Yeah, Just, and me, you can respond me. to it. Yeah. I think I was directly with that comparison, thinking about the number of decisions that you get to make in the system. So normalizing how that randomness plays out, not necessarily the number of tiles that come out or the number of tiles that you're choosing from, but just literally in the course of the game, the number of decisions that you make. I could imagine a version of Carcassonne where you have just as many tiles, but somehow make fewer decisions. Maybe you have fewer fewer meeples or um, I don't know, some of the tiles are randomly placed for you or, or something of that nature. And that just directly feels like a lower, it just literally is a lower agency game. So I guess that's what I'm getting at. And in this weird Brendan's brain backdoor tunnel path. No, that makes sense. And I'm sure a lot of people listening are probably no, right not. there with you. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. So, so, okay. So here's another weird thing that I've experienced with this game that I think also has to do with the way the game presents that makes it feel like you don't have to be a try hard about it. Okay. Which is that when I play this game in person with friends, and again, typically I'm bringing this out with friends who are uh, not 
big board gamers, right? Either relatively new. This isn't the game I would pick as like a gateway, gateway, like first game, because I think mm. it can be kind of hard to grok any semblance of a strategy in the first game. But people who want a lighter experience, or maybe it's their like second time coming over for game night or something like that. Um, but when it's just a weird phenomenon that I've seen that happen in this game that I don't think with the same people playing, I've seen any other game where like sure enough at some point in a game we'll be playing have a good time and somebody will just place a tile down that like finishes somebody else's feature right like somebody will get the opportunity to fill a hole in the map and they'll just put the tile there even though it doesn't help themselves or it helps somebody else way more than themselves and it just kind of like leaves me scratching my head and they're you know but they're like nope like that's what i want to do it like i can fill this out i've been staring at that hole all game and this is going right there i don't know what it is about this maybe it just has to do with the theme and the art have you seen anything like that i think that that is that moments like that are where i think a game designer goes like wow this this game is really functioning very effectively because to that player right the the experience of the the really human experience of creating the desire to create order in an inherently chaotic system is playing out in like a way that the player is saying, I don't care what the points are. It's more real of an experience for me and more meaningful to just slop the slap this city tile down that does the four slots. That's the win that I'm here for today. And it's so interesting because those decisions in a lot of games don't happen. But it's like exactly the reason why watching someone or like playing Tetris and getting a Tetris feels so good. And it, it's almost like, right, yeah, that would like, never happen. I did that. That was, it, I was the one who finished that, even if it's not, you know, super right. helping them. It'd be like a game of Tetris where you're putting like, your like four piece down on your opponent's board to get a Tetris, even though you're giving them <laughs> the points and it doesn't make sense, but you're like, oh, but I got a Tetris, right? <laughs> yeah. And that goes back to the bingos where it's just like, we are chasing that moment where in the randomness and in the chaos, this happenstance event that was low probability came out, but you got your bingo. Um, and somebody, people listening to this are probably just cringing, right? Like not in my game group, right? That would ruin the game. Somebody making sure. a decision that's just choosing, you know, to help somebody else win. It's king making, it's whatever. And I'm sympathetic to that. And I feel like in almost any other game, I would almost say like, well, you know, you realize like you're just helping them at the expense of yourself. Like maybe you should reconsider. And I would even try that here. But like, I feel like in some games I would really like almost consider like, no, like you just can't do that. Like that sure. will ruin the balance of this game, right? We're going to be doing a, this is going to be like a two hour plus experience. We can't have you just like throwing points or resources to somebody else for no reason. But Maybe it's just because of the weight of it and the relatively quick playtime or that this game is providing value to your life in other ways besides the strategic competition, just in that like meditative shared experience that like I don't it doesn't really bother me in a way that I would almost expect it would uh, when that kind of thing has happened. No, that's so interesting, Jake. And I, I sort of uh, I can I know that a ton of people will be so thankful that you said that and I am, too. 
But to me, that moment that you brought up goes back to the incredibly precise language I was using earlier, and I'm saying that sarcastically, of what is the magic of Carcassonne? And and that's like getting at that moment, right? And that's where like, we, we've just barely touched on it, but like where the graphic design and the game physically, how it works on the table, it's just working on this like amazing like human brain art completion level that's so great. And really quickly, I feel like I have to plug Susan McKinley Ross again, because the idea of like leaving room for bingos, which Carcadotson does so well. Jake's like, Brendan, you plug Susan McKinley Ross all the no, time. No, 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 it's great. That concept is not my own. It's uh, Susan McKinley Ross's. She's the designer of Corkle. And there's an amazing GDC talk. So if you're curious more, it's called Design Epiphanies. Just Google Susan McKinley Ross and bingos. It was, I think, a really illuminating uh, game design video from a an abstract game designer that really unlocked a, a new way to think about games for me that I appreciate a lot. I, I, I spoke about this being like kind of a quintessential passive aggressive game. And I think that's probably what I like it most for, for uh, introducing people. Like, I feel like this is a great introduction to like, that's the type of fighting that happens in a Euro game, like the type of player interaction. If somebody really has a great time playing Carcassonne, I have a, very good sense that they would also enjoy a, uh, a stepping stepping up to a game like uh stepping up only in terms of weight not in terms of value uh a game like uh castles of burgundy mm. or something like that that that's really players are fighting and engaging with each other uh in a different way than people might think of who are new to the hobby who have only played you know risk um, or Monopoly and, and, and those type of mass market games. Um, but it's not just a quintessential passive aggressive game. It's also a quintessential like tile placement game, right? Mm, certainly. Uh, yeah. And that is a mechanic that's, you know, used so often. Um, and I feel like more and more these days, uh, tile placement is often like just one component that goes into making a bigger game. Uh, that's some amalgamation of a bunch of different mechanics. Obviously, small tile placement games, kind of filler style stuff still comes out. Uh, but I think that bingo speaks so much to what is satisfying about tile placement itself. Like tile placement, I think one of the biggest virtues of just that mechanic in general uh, is that it allows people to experience that kind of pattern completion. Um and, you know, the fact that it's happening out on a table and a shared experience lets everyone kind of be a part of it much more so than, uh, you know, completing a combo of cards in your hand. Like, that's great for you. But everyone's kind of seeing that and everybody's getting a little pang of satisfaction when a feature becomes complete. Um, and I think, you know, that's also kind of contributing to this game that's creating a dynamic that allows people to say, you know what, I'm just going to do this now because. That's what I want to do. <laughs> Definitely. It's very interesting, too, that Carcassonne is a game that allows for that. It's a tile game that is of a shared space. And I think games of shared spaces, uh, a lot of a lot of games, a lot of games that we've talked about, Jake, uh, they so much operate where I have my space in the game and you have your space in the game and you're trying to do what you're we're trying to do the same thing in our individual spaces better and we'll interact between some sort of shared market. And Carcassonne is like having none of that. It's just like, no, we're all playing the same shared space. And I think that gives the game a coziness and sort of uh, a, a much more tighter feel that like I'm so directly invested. Um, 
I also think just for where Carcassonne fits in in my sort of life and game experience, something I love about the game is it's a game you can stick into like any place in your day. It's sort of a game you might like pull out after breakfast, but before you go out on a hike, you might just say, do you want to play a quick game of Carcassonne? Um, Or it could equally as much fit, you know, if you're having a bunch of people over and you're going to play two or three or four games and you you could shove it in a lunch, just say, should we play Carcassonne over lunch? We'll have it over there. We'll eat over here. Um, Sorry to those of you who are cringing at the idea (laughs) of like games on the table with food. But I, I think that that malleability of Carcassonne to fit in so many different spaces in people's days is also part of what's made it so lasting is it's just a really flexible game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the kind of the, the final point I wanted to make about the game, and if you have more, then please. Um, but is I don't think this is just going off on a whole whole different area. Uh, back to the game mechanics. Uh, I think there's also one thing that's really interesting about it um, is that it allows players to make. It's another game that doesn't have guardrails, right? It allows yeah. players to make huge mistakes. And I think that is another reason this kind of works as a gateway game, actually, ironically, um, because I, we've talked about in the podcast before that making mistakes in board games, while it doesn't feel good at the time, is is also one of the most interesting things you can do. And I think for me, and maybe dare I say most people, it's something that makes you want to get back in the saddle and give it another go. Um, it's pretty hard in a game like Ticket to Ride uh, for things to go off the rails too bad. No matter what, you're, you, 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 know, you might get blocked in and not get your big ticket, right? And that's sad, but you're still doing a lot over the course of the game. In Carcassonne, if you are inefficient with your economy of workers... And it's very easy to kind of put yourself in a position where you have a bunch of workers out on the board in positions where they're likely never coming back to you or maybe use too many uh, farmers early. And so, you know, for sure those aren't coming back and you're halfway through the game and you have no workers and no hope of really (laughs) doing much for the remainder of the game. And that's something that this game allows people to do. Um, And I think it's, it's interesting, you know, that, it, it, it maybe that's one of the reasons that it has held up so well as a gateway game because i would think our, our first instinct would be that a game that allows you to make huge mistakes and lose early on in the game would be something that we wouldn't favor for those things but still carcassonne is one of the games most often recommended as like a gateway I'm so surprised. I, the whole time you were talking, I thought you were going to go to an example of a mistake that people made that didn't involve the playing of their meeples, which is certainly a mistake you can make. But the, the game also invites you to just put tiles in places that are a mistake, right? And a large part of that is about when you make a mistake in a game, I, I don't, this is just a new idea. I wonder if in some ways, if we've laid out this decisions versus choices paradigm, if making a mistake is when you pick a you go with a choice that is not a decision. It's not a viable path, right? You you functionally committed to one of the choices you've been presented that wasn't really something you were supposed to be making a decision between. And when you do that, you learn that you made the wrong decision and you close that path off in the future. And that gives a really uh, rewarding learning curve for players as they experience the game. And it's interesting that in Carcassonne, it can happen with just placing tiles. You could place a tile and then go like, oh, a few turns later, see the mistake you made. 
and know in the future that's not a viable choice. But then as the you're sort of develop as a player of the game, maybe third, fourth level play, you're starting to think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have committed to this farm too early. I don't have enough information about how things are going to play out. Or, oh, these cities seemed like really safe bets. But now people have laid all of these tiles that are, are going to require three city tiles around them to finish them rather than two. And I'm not going to get my meeples back. And it gives this really smooth learning curve that makes you as a player feel smart when the when ultimately what are functionally decisions start to look that way and no longer what are functionally choices no longer look that way and you see what the real decisions are yeah i I think what you're speaking to is is just learning right this game offers a lot of moments of leveling up even in within that first play uh you'll probably level up a couple of times as you start to see the game unfold um because i think it i had that experience uh, when I first played it, but I think it is a difficult game to fully understand everything that's going to happen after you hear the rules. You kind of have to let it wash over you one time, even though it is very simple. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't have that impression if I played it for the first time today after, you know, playing so many different board games over the past six years. But I think there there is that quality to it um, where you're going to be making mistakes and learning things almost player you know almost regardless of experience level in that first game which is that's so interesting to me and how we've contextualized the conversation here of carcassonne being a gateway game which i think is to say nothing of its weight or or any of of that nature really Uh, to me a gateway game is a game that is easy to play with other people so weight comes in and heaviness comes into play but i think what distinguishes it from other light games might be that it becomes a microcosm, like you're saying, Jake, of, oh, here's this cool thing about board games. They're going to teach you how to learn. And that feeling of learning how to be better at this task that's beautiful to watch play out in front of you feels good. You might like playing other board games. And it also has that element of like, it seems so simple. And then you realize there's more there. More there. That's also, right? Even like when I played Underwater Cities, a very complicated game for the first time. (laughs) I was able to do really well because I've played so many different games. I was able to see uh, the end of game scoring conditions. I was able to work towards those. uh, And I ended up, you know, winning my very first game playing with other experienced people just because, you know, and this is a a praise of Underwater Cities, right? The game does such a good job signposting, which is, I think, really important in uh, a, a complicated game. So you can get that good positive experience in the first play. On the other hand, Carcassonne, so much more simple, dead simple compared to Underwater Cities, but it has no signposting at all. It really does just throw you into the wolves uh, and and it it lets you make mistakes at the beginning. And I think uh, for a gateway game, that's something that, you know, I makes me want to keep returning to it again and again, much more than other games like Ticket to Ride, which I think might actually be my personal recommendation to like bring somebody brand new into the hobby uh, i'm a, i'm kind of done with ticket to ride like i'll i'll still play it uh if other people uh want to you know i'm not i'm not gonna uh refuse to play or anything like that but i i today i'm much more excited still to play carcassonne even though i've played it much more uh, because i still feel like there's more there well put yeah well I feel like we've made the the listeners some small promise in some small way on as they cruise with us in this interdecisional spaceship. But Jake, can you really quickly or as quickly as you would like, I should say, 
lay out why if someone they're going to play to buy either Carcassonne or Carcassonne Hunters and Gathers, or they're going to look to play one of them online. If you had to point them in one direction or the other, which direction would you point them and why? Um, I, for me, I, it just, it depends on the person. If you're newer to games, haven't played as many games, definitely stick with the original. I think if you're someone who's has a little bit more experience with games, which probably, uh, defines 95 percent of our listenership though i hope that's wrong i hope a lot of uh brand new gamers are, are discovering decision space and wanting to really just like dive right into the decisions that make games great and why they're interesting um but i think most you know kind of serious gamers would even though i hate using that term but like you know if, if uh if you would consider yourself if you would consider board gaming to be one of your big hobbies, I think Hunters and Gatherers is just going to offer a little bit more for you. And that primarily comes because there are these uh, special tiles that come up in the forests, which are equivalent to cities um, that when they're completed, if there's like a gold mine in them, you get to immediately draw another uh, tile and place it. And those tiles you would draw are special tiles that have some kind of extra ability uh, so it just games it up a little bit more those moments are really satisfying it changes the relative value of different features that are out on the board which uh, perhaps forces more interesting choice i don't know more interesting it, it just changes the dynamic of the choices that are out there on the board or decisions i should say and then finally the biggest difference is that there are much fewer workers to start with in hunters and gatherers than there are in base carcassonne which i think makes it uh a little bit more punishing it's it's more frequent that you could find yourself without workers um but it, that also just like ramps up the risk reward of those early decisions where uh that are frequently in base carcassonne it's a no-brainer you play down your tile you put a guy down on the future uh, now you really have to think about it because if if it, if that worker gets stuck out there, you, that that's one of your. Is it, it's just four workers, I think, that you get in the game. Yeah, I think also I, everything Jake just said, I completely agree with. And I I think also one thing I really enjoy about it is that you sort of have two different types of workers. You have your regular workers, which can become many types of workers, but then you also have your huts that you can place on river system which if you've only played original Car carcassonne are actually roads <laughs> and this is not about the head and the heart but if you i like those huts those those workers that let you uh interact with river systems and hunters and gatherers uh in a committal way in a similar nature to a farm but slightly differently um and it's not a i wouldn't say it's a deeper decision space but it's a decision space of more and sometimes that can be just enough to freshen it up so if you haven't played carcassonne in a, in a long time because maybe your group got tired of it but you you sort of like have this pining desire to return maybe you could suggest hey let's try hunters and gathers and yeah. it might might do that for you and it's one that we've been having a lot of fun playing with people in our Discord on Yukata. So feel free to hop in our Discord. The link is in the description of this podcast. And we would love to... I, I mean, I, it's a game I, I'll never turn down an invite to play some Carcassonne Hunters and Gatherers on Yukata. That is a guarantee. 
Yeah, and we have lo- it's it's been really fun, Jake. Uh, the amount of games that are happening just because of people organically hanging out in the Discord looking for people to play games with has gotten to a pretty cool place, and I really appreciate everyone who's been participating there. I am going to win a game of Hey, That's My Fish at some point, not just tie them. Uh, I don't know that this one that we're currently in is the one, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that's all to say, if, you're, if you want to play some games, uh, our Discord might be a good place to come look for people to play games with. Absolutely. And talk about them. Uh, so with that, next week, uh, for all you pre-planners out there, I know you're the ones that are still listening. Uh, and we, you already know, next week is a What We Talk About episode. But Jake and I, the nav computer has gone a little bit wonky and we're not sure where we're heading. So you'll have to tune in next week to find out. Something you've said on this podcast gave me an idea that I think would be great. So, Ooh, maybe we'll get get it in the charts. Well, take care, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful day. And thank you for listening. Bye, y'all. You are now exiting the decision space. Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game. (laughs) 